Welcome to the Well Ministry Podcast, where we want to help you understand the Bible. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Pastor Nathan Walter. Today we are going to look at a story in Abraham where he has to learn to wait. He has to learn to wait upon the Lord. And it's a hard lesson, not to give too much away, but it's a hard lesson. And I think that it's a lesson that, that we need to learn as Christians, to wait upon the Lord, to wait for him to move, to trust in his direction, to trust in his word. And we're going to study that today in Genesis 12, if you'll turn with me. To make up for the fact that I forgot my Bible last time, I brought two. My wife brought me one. So in Genesis 12, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. We've heard this before. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's just, for a minute, let's just close our eyes. Um, Because God is talking to Abraham, but he is talking. We are that nation. We have been grafted in, and he's speaking this to us. So let's just close our eyes and imagine God saying this to us. I will make you. That was God appearing. (laughs) Twinkle, twinkle. I'm here. All right, close your eyes. I will make you, people of God, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is still true of us. It's true to us. You can open your eyes now. So Abram heard this from God, and it says, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, or Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So a lot of a lot happens in this passage, a lot of amazing things. Here we see the promise that God makes to Abraham, right? He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll bless, uh, th- I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. So we all know Abraham went and he took with him his wife, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and people they had acquired while living in Haran. And they arrived in Canaan. They left and they arrived in Canaan. (sighs) What a great story. God called them out, said, go to Canaan. They went, they arrived. Amen. Isn't that just how the promises of God work? Tells you to go, you go. Immediately, everything goes well. It's awesome. They're there. 
And then God appears to him again and, and reminds him and again promises the land to him. What a faith builder, right? You're there, you made it to the place that God told you to go, and then God appears to you again in the promised land and says, I'm going to give this land to your ancestors, right? Like, and you're just like, man, it's done. That's awesome. But like, if Abraham's anything like me, how often do we hear something said, especially something good and like, like overwhelmingly good news, and we're a little like, we're like, that's awesome, and we walk away from it, and then you kind of like get to a place where you're just like, oh, wait, wait a minute. What did they say? Okay, let's just go over. Maybe they meant, and we can even like think of like, like, uh, oh, maybe he meant this. Maybe he meant that. And like the further you get away from it and you start to like wonder and like, oh, was I supposed to do something? Did I not do that thing? Like, oh, and we start like kind of figuring out what's, what, I, don't, I don't, maybe it's not as good as I thought. Like, and this is like a huge thing for, for God to say to him. And, and, and like, maybe Abraham's at a point where he's just like speculating on like, am I right? Did I forget a part? Like, uh, what's happening here? But but God is good enough to say, no, you heard me right. You heard me right. Like the land will be yours. The descendants will be yours. And and like maybe he started to wonder if he heard it more clearly as there's some road bumps because there's going to be some road bumps, right? He gets there and the Canaanites are already in the land, right? And there, there's the descendants of Ham and his son Canaan who've been cursed and I mean, you'd think like, uh, Lord, um, there's people here already. I kind of thought that this would be an empty place, right? And he doesn't settle in, but he continues to kind of move around. It says he stays at Shechem. Then he moves to the hills east of Bethel. And maybe they were just like worshiping a little too hard for him at Bethel. And he was like, this is kind of weird. They're like, there's like a honey bowl. And like, I'm, you know, and then he see he moves towards the Negev, which means south. And maybe we think maybe Abraham's kind of wandering around, but but like he's touring the new land, right? I'm just walking the length of the property. Here we are, sticks a stick in, you know, and he's like with a little orange little thing. Like that's mine, that belongs to me. But it, we read like he's moving around because it said, it said he took all his possessions and he took all the people he had accumulated with him. Um, some came with him from Ur and some were acquired in Haran. Some were born into his household and many believe that some were bought from foreigners while they lived in Haran. So if we look at Genesis 14, 14, um, it says when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, not gonna say who it is, leave the suspense for later. He called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So we can look at this verse and say, all right, he had at least he had 318 men, and it just says born into his household. So we know he's got 318 fighting men born into his household. It doesn't include other workers, doesn't include women and children, and not to mention Lot has his own retinue of men. So this is like a large group. And when we picture like the livestock that they have, like this is a very, very large group. And with a group this size, Abraham's got to keep moving because he's like, he's got to, it's a never ending search for water and pasture, right? So he's moving and trying to provide for this very large group of people. I think when we think Abraham and his family left, we think five people walked along. But this is a large, large group that he has to care for. And as they move south into the Negev, which is a desert region, things get harder and harder for this group until they kind of reach a breaking point. In Genesis 12, 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine 
was severe, not just a famine, a severe famine. So if you look at the topography of the Middle East, um, the brown is not good, not where you want to live. Okay, and this is a like triangular place down here. This southern part that's all brown, that's the Negev. That's where they went. That's where they're wandering around. Splendid place. Okay, so that's where they are. And it's already kind of hard to find water and pasture for all these people. And then a famine hits. And so Abraham goes to Egypt. And he doesn't come up with the idea of going up to Egypt on his own. He's not just like, I've got a splendid idea. This is actually, Egypt has already been established as a granary of the region, and it was standard. It was a standard place for people, especially wandering nomads, to go in times of famine. Um, and you see this again in Joseph's time. Like if you were in the south, if you were down there in that nasty little brown spot in the triangle, obviously heading over to Egypt, look at all that green. But if you're in the north, up in the Canaan area, you would head north to Mesopotamia. That's just like what people did at the time. That's just like if there's a famine, you're in the south, you head to Egypt. You're in the north, you head to Mesopotamia. And we, so we may wonder to ourselves, okay, Abraham ended up in the promised land, but then he left. Was he being faithless or was he being wise? Was he being wise and caring for his people? But we're going to see in the next section some evidence that might lead us towards the conclusion that Abraham might be reacting to his surroundings and his situation rather than reacting by faith or by, or by wisdom. And it says, Genesis 12, 11, As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Starting out good for him. It's getting points. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels." One of the interesting little side notes here, like the camels are listed last. People were like, well, this Bible can't be true because camels weren't domesticated at that time. And so obviously this is true. This isn't true. But then they found, guess what? Camels were domesticated at that time. And, but they just weren't, they just weren't like primarily used. So you'll see that they're listed last in belongings a lot because they were usually like the least amount of livestock that they had. So just a little, eh, wanted to throw that in there. Um, so he's faced with a difficult situation, famine, and then a severe famine. And then he goes to Egypt. And like, if you're, if you're, any, well, this is kind of like, if you're into anything like me, um, I kind of like, you're like, I know where this is going to go. I know where this is going to lead. Then we can see Abraham doing that. He's like, we're going to go there. I know what's going to happen. It's kind of a jump, right? We're going to go there. What's going to happen? They're going to think that you're my wife. They're going to kill me. They're going to take you. They're going to marry you. I'll be dead. That's, that's what's going to happen. I just know it's going to happen because you're so beautiful. Because you're so beautiful. And he's walked it there, and he's just so certain of it. He's like, this is what we're going to do. This is, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to handle this situation. Even though God has said something different. Isn't that, isn't that how we all are, though? God says something, and we're like, okay, okay. But what if this happens? What if this happens? I don't know. Uh, like, I remember, like, when we first um, started getting this building, and it was like, and everything's just falling into place, and, and God was taking care of everything, but I was still just kind of like, but something's not going to pan out. Something. When's it coming? 
I just know something's coming because that's kind of how me and my family are. We're like, if something bad can happen, it's going to happen. And you know who's going to happen to us, the Walters, because it always happens to us, you know? And I'm just like, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. You guys got to stop talking like that. You guys are bringing everybody down. But they do, mostly Jenny, some of Leanne. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but we all kind of do that a little bit. Um, we act as if like there's already a foregone conclusion. And we act as if there are things that live outside of the providence of God. And Abraham is just so certain of how this is going to go. He's so certain of his death. He's so certain that the promise of God is not going to come to pass unless he steps in and uses his own wisdom to help God out a little, right? Because God did kind of cause the famine, right? It's like, God, if you're not going to help me out, I'm going to do something. So he lies. He lies. And it's not a full lie. It's not a full lie. It's a half-truth. It's a little lying by omission because Sarah, or Sarai, is not his full sister, but she is the daughter of another of his father's wives. So in that time, she could have said, he's my brother from another mother. And she might have said that, right? And so so she's his half-sister. She's his half-sister. And we may think that's so gross, but if you remember, everybody was pulling for these guys to get together. And they, if you think about it, are half-siblings, right? If you don't know how lions work, there's one guy and a lot of females. So they're related. Just throwing that out there. You'll never be able to watch that. Same. All right. I'm always harping on that. I know you guys have heard that story before, right? Um, but, but there is an advantage in this situation for him saying that, that he is her brother rather than her husband. Because if she is his wife and somebody else wants her, well, it's pretty easy to get rid of him, right? You just bury him in the sand, right? Somewhere in the desert. And, and it's a cheap solution, right? But if she is his sister, if she's his sister, when there's no father present at the time, back in this day, the brother kind of assumes the legal guardianship of his sister. So this comes into play when someone wants to marry his sister because then they arrange the marriage, they negotiate not with the father who isn't present, but with the brother. So if someone wants to marry Sarah, they, they have to negotiate with him, the brother, over the terms. And so perhaps Abraham thinks, okay, if I'm the brother, then they'll say, oh, I want to marry your sister. Let's negotiate on the terms. And he can say, okay. And then he gives him a little bit of time to figure out what he's going to do and escape the situation, right? It's like one of those things where like, we're going to do this and this will buy some time and then we'll make the next decision and buy a little bit more time. And it's actually kind of smart if, if what he thinks is going to happen is going to happen. And it's definitely why it's a wise thing to do by earthly standards. It, it's even shrewd right? But he had only planned on coming across a regular Egyptian who was interested, right? He didn't plan on coming across Pharaoh who can take what he wants when he wants it. Someone's like, that's a pretty girl. He's like, I don't even need to see her. Go get her. Bring her. Bring her to my house, right? I'll take her. And he like gives Abraham stuff and blesses him. But like now, Abraham, like how is he going to get her back, right? Yeah, now it's a situation because when you negotiate, you, you hold on to it until, to the woman, not it, to the woman until you come to terms and then they get married and it's beautiful. But now since it's Pharaoh, Pharaoh's like, I like it. I'll take it. Buy that, buy that and takes it. And then you're like, uh, now Abraham's in a pickle, which is what they said. The original Hebrew word means pickle. 
Okay, that's not true. But, and so, so his wife is taken, it says, into Pharaoh's house, and that's a very beautiful word for harem, because he's taken, she's taken into his harem, in the harem of Pharaoh. How terrifying for her. Can you imagine how terrifying that might be, the situation? Because he is like, he's like got his people around him, and he's not, she's in this situation that is beyond her. She is being held in a place where she's guarded, where she cannot escape from, where she may be asked to do things that just like are dishonorable, right? It's a threat to her honor, and and he did it. It all comes from a plan for him to save his own skin. You better believe she was thinking that while she was in there. (laughs) And all this was part of a plan to save his own skin. He's got 318 trained men. Is that not enough, right? We can't say, and we do this all the time, we can't say that God is behind something or that God is in something when it involves lying, when it involves deceit, when something is built on falsehood, when it's sustained or protected by lies. We can't begin to claim for a second that it's of God. Sometimes we lie to protect people or to hold something together, but maybe God doesn't want it held together. Maybe God wants that kingdom or that idol in our life to fall, right? And we can't begin to claim, oh, this is of God. This is of God. If we attain it or sustain it by lies, it's not of God. And we see this, we see this happening all the time. You look at all these mega pastors, right? Ravi Zacharias. Um, and, and we're doing awful things and people protected them by lying or withholding information by, and thinking, well, they're doing the work of God and I'm protecting the ministry by lying for them, which enabled them to do what? Hurt more people, right? To hurt more people. And then in the end, more people are like, how, how often, how often as Christians do we use the tools of the devil to do the works of God? And then when something good happens, we think God has blessed it. We think God has blessed it. That's not, that's not the way God works. That's not the way God works. We do it all the time, right? We, we protect people. We lie for people. We, and like sometimes we want to be in a relationship. So, so we lie and we're in that relationship or we lie to sustain that relationship. Or sometimes we want a job. And so we lie to get that job or we lie to sustain that job right? Or maybe we're a little bit shrewd and we're a little bit like business-like and manipulative. And then when things go well, we think God has just opened up the heavens. Praise God, right? When really we kind of know in the back of our minds that it all kind of hangs on a thread because we know that we did some things that weren't actually of God to, to attain what we thought God wanted, right? And we cannot live our lives that way and then think that that's God. That that, I mean, that's one way to judge if you're doing something of God or if it's God's blessing is if you lived how God wanted you to live and, and did the works of God with the tools of God, and then there's blessing. If we're acting just like the world as we move about and then things happen, like why, why should we think I'm definitely in where God wants me? I am where God wants me. He had me lie and cheat and steal and manipulate. And here I am. Good God. He's good. Right? And we begin to, what really we begin to trust in our, in how we, in our own works. And then what happens? We continue to trust in our own works because things went well. Right? So we continue to trust in our own works. We continue to move in that until we're not even following God anymore. We're not doing the works of God. 
We're not. We're totally out of the path. We're totally out of the plan. And we're so deluded that we think, man, God's kingdom, we're building it. When we're using the tools of the devil, the tools of the enemy. And, and just like it always happens, the lie comes crumbling down. And Abraham is exposed for the fraud that he is. He's exposed. And we'll read that in Genesis 12, 17 through 20. If you don't know how this goes. Um, it says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So God steps in, just like God was always ready to step in. God was always ready to step in. God already had a plan on how he would take care of Abraham, but Abraham did his own thing. Now, how did Pharaoh know that it was caused by Sarai and Abraham, something the plague, plague affected everyone in the house but her. And so you could be like, hmm, why is she special? Why is it not doing anything to her? Maybe he was able to tie the occurrence of these plagues with the arrival of the new woman, right? Like the minute she gets here, something happens because they're very superstitious, right? Or maybe God even revealed to him his error. And don't think that no matter how it happened, God didn't give Pharaoh the wisdom to be able to figure out this is the source of my problem. Right? This is the source of my problem. Either way, he sends Abraham on his way. And he doesn't just like, like Pharaoh with, with the Jews later on. He doesn't say, let my people go. He doesn't, no, Pharaoh doesn't say that ever. But he, let your people go. No, but he's very reluctant and he finally like lets them go. But here he's like, get out of my face. Take everything you have, everything you've touched, everything that has anything to do with you and be gone. And he, he has such a distrust for Abraham that he's like, men, make sure they leave. Make sure they get outside the border. Make sure no one turns around. Make sure they make no stops. Get out of here. I want nothing to do with you. And isn't that so sad and disgusting when God uses the world to point out the errors of godly men, godly people, when like the world is like, this is disgusting what you've done. And this is what we're seeing happen, right? This is what we're seeing happen, that the world is like, you're so gross. Get out and be gone. And that's what happens when we as Christians try to do God's work the way the world does things, by lying and deceiving. Pharaoh is disgusted with him and he's like, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to see your face again. And we see this man who is renowned for his great faith. That's what he's known for, his great faith. And we see him in a moment of unfaithfulness. His greatest strength, his greatest strength is faithfulness, and that's where he fails. In Dr. Strahan's Hebrew Ideals, he says, um, and when I read it, he uses these terms, so I just feel like I should read it in a British accent. So it sounds more like, it is recorded in history, the Edinburgh Castle, uh, it's recorded in history that Edinburgh Castle was supposed to be inaccessible on the pre precipitous side. You know, the precipitous side. <laughs> uh, and there, the defenses, because they thought it was inaccessible there, the defenses were feeble and the outlook careless, while on the weaker sides, the fortifications were strong and the watch was strictly kept. 
but it was at the strongest, not at the weakest point, that the entrance was affected and the citadel captured. It is also on the strongest side that the citadel of man's soul is often captured. The weakness of God's servants is most conspicuous where their strength lies. The sense of security is near akin to the haughty spirit that goes before a fall. Abram, the most faithful of men, sinned by unfaithfulness. Moses, the meekest of men, by anger. Solomon, the wisest, by folly. Elijah, the most valiant, by fear. John, the gentlest, by vindictiveness. And Peter, the bold, by cowardice. Unguarded strength is double weakness. Unguarded strength is double weakness. Sometimes we rely too much on our own strength and we, we start to trust in our own strength so much that we can't see what God is doing. We can't see what God is doing even in times of famine. We start to trust in our works and what we can do. But listen, guys, moments of faith, moments of great faith, acts of faith are often followed by famine. Acts of great faith are, are always followed by famine, even with Jesus, even with Jesus. Right after Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and the dove descends and God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, right? Right after God's affirmation and declaration, Jesus is sent into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And if God did not spare Jesus, why would he spare us? And why would he not spare Jesus? Because he can do something in it. He wants to do something in it. This famine, this wilderness moment is meant to test and grow our faith. These, these, these wilderness moments, these famine moments are meant to grow our faith. Maybe Abraham expected that his obedience to God would be rewarded immediately upon entering the land. Isn't that how we think it's going to be? I'm going to obey God and things are just going to go really well, right? He probably expected to arrive in the promised land to find an abundance of water, fertile lands as far as the eye can see. There's green as far as I can see. What is this fruit? I've never tasted it. Oh, it's amazing. What's this? Sugar on the ground, right? Just like an oasis, the perfect place. God has promised in this land. It's got to be good. And then when he gets there and he's like, this is not what I expected it to be. This is not what I thought this was going to be. What happens when God doesn't do what we expect? When we're following him. When we're following God and he doesn't do what we expect. When we expect it. Where is our faith then? Do we still trust in him? What happens when we answer the call of God and then there is a famine in the middle of the mission? There's a famine in the middle of the mission. Do we trust that God is going to see that through, see that mission through? Do we allow the famine to bring us far from God? Because so often in times of famine, there's the temptation to move far from God. And we don't think that we are, but we do because things aren't happening. You know, it is possible for us to stop believing in God and stop believing God at any moment. We can stop believing in God and we can stop believing God at any moment. I see it all the time. You know when that happens? Times of famine. Something happens. Something bad happens in our family. Something bad happens to some, someone we love. Something happens that we have been praying against and we go, I'm going to stop believing now. And then we say, I, I'm going to stop believing in God now. That is not who I'm going to seek as the source of the answer to my problems. That is not where I'm going to seek my peace. That is not where I'm going to seek direction. I will handle my own way. 
through this desert. I will handle my own way through this desert. We begin to believe in ourselves rather than in God. We begin to believe what we see rather than what God has said. God had said it. He had just told him, this land is yours. And he's like, this land is rough. So I'm moving out of it. And then things got worse. And the minute he moved out of it and didn't believe what God said and said, okay, I'm going to move out of this, then he made, what did he do? He made another decision based on what he saw. And he began to move further and further away from God. He was living in the natural. He was living in the natural. Too many Christians, we live in the natural. We live based on what we see and only on what we see. Only on what we see. Things that are tangible, right? But we say that we believe in the supernatural. We say that we believe in the supernatural. And if we truly believe in God and that he is who he says he is, then we have to look at things through the lens of eternity. We have to truly see the earth, the universe, as his footstool. He says that it's his footstool. The earth is his footstool. Do we see it like that? Because any problem seems pretty easily surmountable when the earth is his footstool, right? Do we believe that all things, the wind and the waves, kings and leaders, are all under his authority and only given authority by him, that he is ruler of all? Do we believe that? Because that's what we say we believe. And do we act like that? Do we, do we truly look upon the world, upon our problems through the lens of eternity and through the lens of what the Bible says and what God says? In 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17, there's a situation where Elisha and his servant are in a city and it's surrounded by another army. And the servant is like, uh, uh, he says in, in verse 15, 2 Kings 6, 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. How does he know it? How does he know it? Those who are with us are more than who's with them. How does he know it? Has he seen it? Can he see it? Or does he know it because God said it and he knows who God is? And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. But Elisha didn't need to see it to know it. Can you imagine praying with that faith, knowing that they're there, saying, Lord, open his eyes to what I know there and then what is there and I can't see. Open them now. And then he opens his eyes and it's exactly, it's probably better than Elisha could have imagined. Better than Elisha could have imagined. There was probably more, more of an army, more glorious than he could have possibly imagined. And he's like, oh, Lord, I didn't know it's that many. Oh, Lord, I didn't know that, that they were that glorious. Lord, I didn't know that your armies were so grand. Lord, I didn't know. I thought, I believed you. But when you showed me what you had done, it was far beyond what I even thought. And in those times of famine, that's how we need to live and act. That's how we breathe is like whatever, however you view God when he has said something, however you view his power, it is grander and greater than you can possibly imagine. The earth is his footstool. 
And, 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 and the whole point of this, listen, like God is, was at work in the midst of his famine. And God is still at work in the midst of your famine because that's who he is. He's a way maker. It's not what he does. It's who he is. Abraham tried delivering himself and he failed spectacularly and he put himself in an inescapable situation. And you know what? It was his own fault. It's his own fault. And that's kind of one reason we start to think when I'm this way, maybe God has left me in this situation because it's my own fault. Because it's I put myself here. Maybe God's not going to rescue me, but God saved him anyway. God saved him anyway. And you know what? I bet Abraham was crying out in his predicament. And if he wasn't, you know Sarah was. You know, Sarah was like, Lord God Almighty, I am in this place and I don't know how to get out. And Lord, please, 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 if you will rescue me. And Abraham's like, Lord, 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 I've made a mistake and now it's bigger than I thought and I thought it was wise and now I don't know how to get out. And even though it was his own fault and even though the consequences were his to own, God steps in and makes a way. No matter how far he had moved from God in his famine, God was still near. God was still near. Jesus died. I have good news. Jesus died for our unfaithfulness. He died for our mistakes. He died for our failures. He died for our faults. He died for us so that we would always be near. We would always be near. And he did all that because his eyes are on eternity. His eyes are on eternity. Every single person in this room, we're going to have moments of failure. Moments of failure. Some small failures, some great failures, moments where we feel like God isn't listening because we know how we got there, right? We know how we got there. And that's when it's hardest for me is when I know, when I'm in a situation and I know how I got there and it was by my own hands and I think, God, God might let me sit in this. God might let me sit in this. We feel like God's not listening to me anymore. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God's moved on to the next person because I failed. And we remove ourselves from ever being used by God again. We remove ourselves. Maybe Abraham could have been like, man, I'm not the guy. Maybe he's going to pass it on to someone else because I'm not even in the land he promised me. I didn't go there. I went somewhere else. And God says, I know that you took it in your own hand. I know you made a mistake. I know you disobeyed. And I know you are far from me, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. And God is not done with you yet. No matter how far you've moved, no matter what you've done that you think takes you out of the plan of God, God is not done with you yet. All we have to do is turn our eyes to him in times of famine, or always. But I know sometimes the famine can be long, and we can forget the promise of God because it just doesn't seem real. It doesn't seem tangible. So if you would, I want to just pray. Let's close our eyes. I want to pray. Lord, everyone in this room has been through a famine, or is in a famine, or maybe is afraid that a famine is about to begin because we know how things are going. And we look and we say, oh, I've done this before. I know what's going to happen. I know what's going to be bad. I've seen this before, Lord. And I just pray 
that in our times of famine, that we will open our eyes. We will open our eyes and look to you and say, I'm not going to go by my own power. I'm not going to go by my own power. I'm not going to trust in my own works. I'm not going to trust anything but what God said because what God said is true. What God said is true. And no matter what famine you are going through, turn your eyes to Jesus. And no matter, even if you put yourself there, even if you deserve the consequences, if you deserve it, if in your mind you are disgusting, you're a liar, and you deserve everything you get, and you know how it always goes, and it's always going to go bad for you because you don't deserve anything good. You wipe that from your mind because that is not what God says. That's not what God says. And Jesus died that we could always be near. And I just pray that as we worship, as we worship God, that you will sense his presence, that you will sense that he is near. Lord, I just pray that you would pour out your spirit, Lord, that we would feel your love upon us, Lord, that we would know who you are, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the way out of, out of this situation, Lord, and that we would look to you in the famine. Help us look to you in the famine, Lord, and trust that you are good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. For more information about The Well and other resources to help you study the Bible, go to thewellministry.co.